As we move from Matthew 2 to 3, you need to keep in mind that many years have passed. Following the death of King Herod the Great, Joseph has moved his young family from Egypt back into Israel. That said, instead of returning to Judea, to Bethlehem, he decides to settle down in the Galilee, the region of Galilee that surrounds the Sea of Galilee, specifically deciding to return to he and Mary's hometown, a town of Nazareth, where Jesus would grow up and remain really until his 30s. We know that because according to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we're told very specifically that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Jesus known as the carpenter from Nazareth. Well, we dive into verse 1, Matthew 3. We read, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, Matthew opens just saying, in those days. Again, Luke chapter 3 provides for us a more specific time frame. Uh, Luke 3, we read that it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor over Judea, Herod Antipas being Tetrarch of Galilee, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Again, very specific by Luke. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So historically, when Matthew says in those days, we know that the year actually lands with, with quite certainty at about 26 A.D., Now, with regards to the identity of this John, John the Baptist, Matthew adds, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We'll unpack that a little bit more uh, later in the study, but it is interesting to note this is one of the very few instances that you'll find like the same prophetic reference, the same quotation, uh, used in all four Gospels. Very unique. Matthew continues, he says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, According to Leviticus 11, if this grosses you out, locusts were actually one of the very few things that were considered, of the bugs, they were considered to be clean animals. Because they jumped, you know, and thus they didn't collect as much bacteria. And so it wasn't abnormal, again, to eat locusts in this day. But it was primarily like the, the, the central point of protein for kind of the poor class. We read then, or the reaction here to John the Baptist, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the name of the Jordan confessing their sins. Of all the characters you'll come across in the New Testament, you'd be (laughs) hard-pressed to find a more colorful character than John the Baptist, or more accurately, John the Baptizer. He wasn't Methodist. He wasn't a Baptist. The Baptist, or the Immerser, the Baptizer, is what's being referenced. Now what's interesting is that unlike Luke, who wrote to a predominantly Gentile audience. Matthew's different. You see, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And as such, John, he, Matthew determines that with regards to John, 
that there was really no reason to provide any type of background. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you're reading through, uh, you know, chapter one, you have this genealogy. Chapter two, you get the wise men, and you get this whole story about, you know, Herod and, and the babies being slaughtered at the end of chapter two. And then you get to chapter three, and it's like, now John the Baptist. Like, Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, he doesn't give you any details about John the Baptist, and here's why. Writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, they would have already known who he was. Like Luke writing to Gentiles wouldn't have known John the Baptist, but John the Baptist in his day was quite a famous character. To this point in his histories of the time, Josephus, a first century historian, actually wrote extensively on the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Josephus would write more about John than he would even Jesus. You see, John the Baptizer in his day created quite a stir. Let me give you just one example as to kind of the lasting impact of John's ministry. In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, we read something really interesting. We're told that there was a Jew named Apollos who was born in Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. He came to Ephesus. So that's a little bit of the backstory. And we're told that this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord. Now here's the catch. Though he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And then this, uh, this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, hearing him, takes him aside. They explain to him the complete gospel more accurately. Again, years later, you find a Jewish man, eloquent, uh, theologically sound, but he only knew, he didn't know the rest of the story, he only knew, you have disciples of John the Baptist years after the fact. Now, in case you aren't familiar with John's backstory, according to Luke 1, his birth was not only predicted, but was supernatural. You see, in spite of the fact that his mother Elizabeth had been barren, and both she and her husband Zacharias were beyond childbearing years. I, I like the way that Luke says it. He just says they were well advanced in years. In spite of those things, no kids, a life of barrenness, God steps into their life and he performs an amazing miracle. Elizabeth conceives a son and they name that son John, which was abnormal because John wasn't a family name. But they do it just as they had been instructed. Now, as an aside, Luke tells us that Mary and Elizabeth not only knew each other, spent time together during their pregnancies, but Luke tells us that they were related, which makes both John the Baptist and Jesus relatives or cousins. They were close in age. Now, according to the account provided by John's father, Zacharias, he says that as he was in his priestly capacity tending to the altar of incense, which was located inside of the temple, he says that an angel, specifically the angel Gabriel, appears to him and tells him that Elizabeth, even though she's well advanced in years, was going to conceive and have a son. They were to name him John. But God tells Zacharias that this son, John, that God had a very special and unique plan for his life. In Luke chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, we actually have the record of what Gabriel says to Zacharias concerning John. I'll read it for you. He says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, 
shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him, which is messianic, in spirit and in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the Old Testament actually closes with the following prophecy. We read, Behold, I will send you, again God speaking to Israel, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. According to this prophecy, Jewish scholars believe that the Old Testament prophet, this kind of hero of the faith, Elijah, would one day physically return to Israel in order to prepare the people for well, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, which was seen as the day that the king, the Messiah, would appear in uncertain times, would destroy the enemies of Israel, would liberate the people and establish his kingdom. Even today, Elijah's appearance remains a messianic expectation within Judaism. During the Passover celebration, there will be a chair left empty at the table. And who's it for? It's for Elijah. In fact, there's part of the ceremony where they'll send some of the kids out into the street to see if Elijah the prophet's coming. Again, this expectation. Tragically, though, one of the things that the religious scholars failed to understand then, as well as really today, was that the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah indicated two advents, and not just one. It's true that many of the Old Testament prophets spoke of the coming king, and they wrote extensively about his kingdom. But other prophets, like Isaiah, wrote of a first coming, a first advent, where the Messiah wouldn't come as a king, but would come as a suffering servant to lay down his life for his brethren. Now, I, personally, I, I believe that Elijah is still coming. Again, he's a unique character in the Old Testament, and the fact that, that he was taken up in a fiery chariot. I don't know exactly how that works, but he's one of those guys that at least theoretically never died. Either way, I think he's probably one of the two witnesses in Revelation that he does come back to prepare the way for Jesus' second coming. But regardless of that, the angel Gabriel, a divine messenger sent from God with a message, he reveals to Zacharias that his son, his baby boy John, would fulfill this prophecy in Malachi with regards to the first appearing of the Christ. Again, the text is clear that John was not the reincarnation of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah. But that's not what Gabriel told Zacharias. He says, look again, he says that he would go before him, the Messiah, the Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. In John chapter 1, verse 21, John the Baptist is actually asked by the religious establishment. They come and they're like, hey, are you the Christ? And he's like, no. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? And John says emphatically, no. Now, it's safe to reason that good old Zach and Lizzie 
love their son. And they sought to raise John in a godly home for the years that they had. And they believed with all their heart that John, their boy's role in this world would be to prepare the way for the Christ. The truth is we know very little of John the Baptist's upbringing. Like all we're, all we're told of John's developmental years, according to Luke's gospel, was that the hand of the Lord was upon him, that he grew and became strong in spirit, and then we're told that he was in the deserts, or, or literally John grew up in uninhabitable places, till the day of his manifestation to Israel, or the day of his appearing. And one of the things that contributed to John's popularity was, in a lot of ways, the timing of his ministry. Like Since Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, had left the scene, God had been silent to Israel. I mean, think about it. For 400 years. It's easy to say 400 years and not really wrap your brain around the context of that. But when you consider that America is only 245 years old, you realize how long 400 years really is. Like, in fact, it was during these 400 years that Israel, this little country, would experience the fall of Persia, the rise of Greece, the fall of Greece, the rise of Rome. I mean, they get hacky-sacked around by the world empires. Now, imagine the moment, after 400 years of silence, when John, okay, clothed in camel's hair, which was the attire that, that Elijah, that prophets kind of wore, camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, came preaching in Jerusalem? No. And the populated centers of power? No. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. There's no doubt that John the Baptist had a kind of an, an Old Testament prophet vibe. Though he had been educated in a religious family, John was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. I have no doubt, with skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. Aside from this, as we'll see, the words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. John was so radical, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. I'm an old DC Talk fan. You gotta... Though unlikely, there was even a Jewish legend at the time. And it's, it's likely this is not true, but it's still interesting. It gives us some insight that people believe that John's camel-haired coat was actually the same coat that Elijah had bequeathed to Elisha. That's the type of regard that people saw this man. Now Matthew tells us that John came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. But according to John 1 verse 28, we know he specifically preached beyond the Jordan at a place known as Bethabara. Now geographically, Bethabara was... It was an area where pilgrims who were traveling south down the Jordan River Valley from the Sea of Galilee would pivot west into the Judean wilderness on their way up to Jerusalem, Bethabara. 
yes, it's wilderness. No one really lives there. But it was, and again, when you're kind of picturing the scene, it was kind of a main artery, a highway that fed the city of Jerusalem. You know, again, how strange it must have been. Like that first day that John gets the word from the Lord, it's time. And he saunters out of the wilderness, wearing his camel-haired satchel, his onesie, held into place with a massive leather belt, looking all wild, disheveled, with locust legs sticking out of his beard from the honey. And he comes down the banks, right to the shore of the Jordan. And as people are walking by, he just starts preaching. Like, how, how long did it take for someone to, like, stop and listen to him? When he first comes out, like, little kids are like, look! And moms are like, no! Let's go the other direction. You know, for John to start preaching and for people to start listening and for crowds to start gathering and word to start spreading, you had no social media. There's not a Facebook group dedicated to John's ministry. I mean, he's not trending in any way. Like, and it's amazing. It really is. Now, again, Matthew is clear to us that his core purpose, like John's core mission, was to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus, the king. John was called to be the forerunner. And that day when a king would come to a town, there would be like an advanced team that was sent to prepare things for the arrival of the king. Their job was to make sure that the road was cleared, that any repairs that, that were necessary were done, that there was a good place to stay, that there was enough food to eat. There was always an advanced team sent out uh, to prepare. This is John's ministry. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Not only has his calling been articulated by an angel to his father, but there's no question John had embraced this God-given calling. But aside from that, in light of Luke 3, John initiates his ministry because he received a word from God. So he's out in the wilderness prepping, waiting until he gets word. The king is coming. And John, you need to go into action. And when you read, you know, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like there is an undeniable like urgency, isn't there? To John's message. You can sense it. And this urgency struck a chord with those that were listening to the masses. The kingdom of heaven is not just coming. He's saying it's at hand. And for people that were under the thumb of Rome, what John is saying here is revolutionary. It's dangerous. See, John is saying the king is here. He's in our midst. The time has come. You need to ready yourselves now. In order to accomplish his mission of preparing the people for, again, the ministry of Jesus, John's message centered on their need for repentance. As the people of God, the nation of Israel, they had strayed. John was, was a lone voice crying out from the wilderness, from the banks of the Jordan, for the nation to repent of their sins. The king is here. You need to repent. It's been rightly said, and I like this. I, I ran across too many people that quoted it as their own to believe it's no one's own, like, everyone's plagiarizing it, but, but I heard that repentance 
is the first word of the gospel. I like that a lot. You see, without repentance, salvation is impossible. Like, like please realize that repentance is not so much as just the confession of sin, which would play a part, or even feeling sorry over sin, which has at, at its core some of the DNA. But this word repent in the Greek, it describes so much more than that. In, in fact, it describes for us three interrelated actions. You need all three for repentance to truly exist. First, repentance begins, it's initiated, as a changing of the mind. You know, a person, for whatever reason, they become intellectually convinced of a reality in their life, part of themselves. And that reality then impacts the will. Uh, again, this is what made John's uh, preaching so essential. And because the Jews had been exiled into Babylon, again, years before, on account of their blatant disobedience, those who returned to the land, rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple, they were very serious religious people. They were serious about not replicating the mistakes of the past. And yet, over these 400 years, their religious dedication hadn't led to holiness. It had led to self-righteousness. It had led to hypocrisy. You know, there's a couple things that got the Jewish people in trouble. Like, for example, they had never obeyed the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day, man. I'm going to give you a day off. Enjoy that. And they never did. So God exiles them to Babylon for 70 years because 490 years they had never taken a year off. And he's like, the math works. So they come back and like, we need to keep the Sabbath. We need to keep it holy. But what did they do? Like a day that was designed to be a benefit to the people. They had tacked on all this non-biblical religiosity. Well, what does it mean to work? So there was only so many steps that you could make and you had to make all your food the day before. And like they had lost the purpose of the command and their attempt to obey the command. Another one was if you study the, the Jewish people. They had intermarried and intermingled with the pagan Gentiles, the world. Something that God had forbid to keep them pure and holy. And so when they come back, they're like, we cannot do that again. But what happened? they became incredibly bigoted and prejudicial towards the Gentiles. Their entire way of thinking got warped. Again, re their desire to be obedient morphed into a religion that developed self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And what, what came? 400 years of silence. Guys, like, you guys are, really? This is what you're going to do? You see, they thought they were on good terms with God. But John comes preaching from the Jordan, wanting them to realize intellectually you're not. You think you are, but you aren't. All the things that you're pointing to, to say that I'm good with God, it's fake, it's a facade, it's not true. You see, in order to ready the people for the coming of their Savior, John needed them to first acknowledge a basic need to be saved. I mean, that's not rocket science, is it? You see, for a person who will never admit they're lost, could never be found. So repentance begins with the changing of the mind. But it's also true, secondly, that a, a true changing of one's mind will result in an immediate ceasing of one's current motion. Let me ask, 
How do you know if a person really believes that what they're presently doing is wrong? They stop doing it. You see, if a person truly comes to a point in which they intellectually acknowledge that what they've been up to is not right and in turn destructive, the first thing they'll do once they've been convinced of the mind is to cease the current activity. Which leads to the third. Again, this is all interrelated. The third component. You see, repentance. It's more than just ceasing one's current motion. It also requires an about face and a change of direction. Think of it this way. Repentance doesn't mean you only cease from doing the wrong thing. Repentance, true repentance, demands you begin doing the right thing. Like in the end, true repentance isn't just a turning from something, but it's a turning to something else entirely, all again initiated by the changing of one's mind. You know, any parent can testify to this, can't you? Like true repentance in the heart of a kid demands what? A change in behavior. If not, it's just a lot of crocodile tears, I'm sorry's, that they got caught, not that what they were doing was wrong. Again, a change in behavior is paramount for true repentance. Which is why John, again, his message centers on repentance, but it's why he also emphasized, according to the text, the confession of sins. As well as John then utilized water baptism as being an outward expression of an internal decision or conviction. You see, if a person listening to John truly was struck in the heart the change in the mind, and they wanted to repent to what John was articulating. What would they do? Well, there's something practical. John would say, come on down into the water and confess your sin and be dunked. This word baptism, make no bones about it, it means in the Greek to completely submerge or totally immerse. Now, though it's true, it should be acknowledged that what John is doing here is really un unorthodox. The act of water baptism wasn't an entirely foreign concept to the Jewish people. Like, for example, within Judaism, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, wanted to convert, become part of the people of God, there were two things required. Circumcision and water baptism. In fact, as an example of, of, of this, the hero, Elijah. There's an interesting story recorded in 2 Kings 5 where a Syrian named Naaman, who had been struck with leprosy, was instructed to go to this very Jordan River and do what? To completely dunk himself seven times to be healed of leprosy. It was an act of faith. Even some of the various procedures within the temple, water baptism. Again, the mikvahs. It was synonymous with purification, cleansing. With these things in mind, John's choice of baptism in the Jordan River as a response to his message of repentance is really fascinating. You see, when these Jewish people were entering the water, when they were confessing their sins, you know what they were actually communicating to the world? I mean, it was a, it was a big pill to swallow. They were saying, I have been living as a godless, pagan, condemned, lost Gentile. 
There's nothing different from them and me. I'm unfit to be considered a child of God and I'm confessing my sin and I'm repenting. And at that point, John then dunks them into the water, immerses them. They come back up, symbolically representing what? Their rededication to the Lord, this purity. You know, again, it's hard to overstate the impact of John's ministry. You know, here's a man that performed zero miracles and had a very simple message. A man known as the baptizer for obvious reasons, and yet it was his message that resonated to people living within a deadened religion. Again, verse 6, Matthew notes, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out, to baptize, went out to John to be baptized by him in the Jordan. Again, hard to verify, but just to give you some insight. The historian Josephus states that over the course of John's roughly one-year ministry, somewhere between 300,000 and half a million people came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Which means that John was performing roughly a thousand baptisms each day for a year. You know, on account of John's growing popularity. I mean, the buzz, the word, was spreading. It wasn't just the commoner who came out to hear him preach. Verse 7, we read, But John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. And, and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the two main political, religious classes, the parties of the day, people in power. And John said to them, welcome. No. He says, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So seeker friendly, that John. You know, this phrase, brood of vipers which I think would be a good name for a punk band, but side note. The phrase brood of vipers can be translated as those begotten of vipers. But needless to say, this was not a compliment on the part of John. Instead, he's publicly calling them out. He's saying, you guys, your character is corrupted. And what you're teaching the people, it's poison. He's saying, you guys are snakes donning the garments of religion. You're cunning, you're malignant, and you're dangerous. Though these men had made the trip down to Bethabara from Jerusalem, in order to see for themselves what they were hearing about John, <laughs> they weren't ready for John the baptizer. After calling them children of snakes, John then asks, who warned you to flee? from the wrath to come. In what was a brazen and really shocking manner, John was saying that these men, and again, these are the political, religious leaders of the day, he's saying, you guys are in grave danger. Like, who warned you where you're going? Who warned you to escape the wrath? Right now, you'll experience the judgment of God. See, in that day, no one would have dared spoke to the religious establishment the way John was doing. He continues, verse 8, Therefore, or because the wrath of God was coming, John advises them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. 
John is telling them that in light of the fact that they were headed to destruction, they needed to repent of their sins like everyone else. And that their repentance needed to manifest in a real tangible change. Repent. Bear fruit worthy, indicative of repentance. And then he adds, do not think to yourselves. Get this idea out of your head. That we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now one of the great challenges the Hebrew people faced, and one of the things that blinded them to their own sin and their own shortcomings, was a false belief that they were good with God because they were children of Abraham. They were Hebrews. They were Jews. I say that this is a false belief because it's a, it would be akin to the notion, the common idea today, that you're a Christian simply because you grew up in a Christian home. As if putting a bed in the garage makes you a car. They don't correlate. As if righteousness was something that, that could be passed on with heredity. Not only is John cautioning these men from making this mistake, but his warning that God was able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones, it's kind of an odd, it's an odd phrase, and it really only makes sense or carries a deeper significance when you know that John is where? He's in Bethabara, which has significance. You see, back in Joshua 4, children of Israel have finally made it to the land of promise, right? But what's, what's the challenge? The challenge is that to get into the land of promise, they had to get across the Jordan River, which had swelled its banks and was doing its thing. It was a torrent. It would have been hard, impossible to get across. We've gotten all this far. How do we get into the land? And God instructed Joshua to have the priest take the Ark of the Covenant. And the moment the priest stepped into the water, the water parted, and the people were able to cross through the, the parted, the parted uh, portion of the river into the land of promise. And when they get to the other side, Joshua instructs them, all the 12 tribes, he says, pile up stones in this place. Pile up stones as a remembrance so that you don't forget it was by faith you entered the land and not by any of your work. So that in the future they could look back to these stones. And a lot of scholars believe that when John makes this, this statement that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones, that those pile of stones still remained. And that this is the reference. Again, John making the point that it's faith and not family heritage that matters most to God. John adds verse 10, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And note, the fire is the wrath that John was warning them initially to avoid. So keep that in mind. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, so the one that John is preparing the way for, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, or again, literally immerse or overwhelm you with the Holy Spirit, fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and a winnowing fan was a tool used by farmers to sift the wheat from the chaff, the grain. This was a tool used during the harvest. Told his winnowing hand is in his hand, he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor 
and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with regards to the coming Christ, John says, he who is coming is mightier than I. And then he gives an example of how much more mightier. He says, regarding his sandals, I'm not worthy even to carry them. And in that day, it was totally normal for rabbis to have disciples. And for disciples to serve the practical needs of the rabbi. And yet there was a limit to the rabbi's authority, what he could ask of a disciple. And one example of this, in this culture, was that the act of washing feet. Again, open-toed shoes and a part of the world that's, that's dirty, with streets that double sewage canals. I mean, your feet were mucky, grimy, gross. Foot washing was an act only reserved for slaves. In, in, in that day and age. And so when John is saying here, he's invoking this image. He's like, he who's coming is mightier than I, so much mightier that I'm unworthy to carry the sandals of this man. He's saying, John is saying, that even the role of a slave was too honorable a position for him to fill. Now as to the essence of what John is articulating, don't miss it. In contrast to the fact that John's role was what? He baptized with water unto repentance. He says of Jesus, look at it, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus came to fulfill a specific role. John's like, I baptized you, repentance. He will come to baptize you, Holy Spirit and fire. And regrettably, some have interpreted this to be one baptism. A baptism that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the manifestation, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit resulted in what told cloven tongues of fire. The problem with that reading, that interpretation, is that it really abandons the context that's already been established in the text for what John references or what he's referring to when he invokes fire. Again, look, and don't miss this point. Verse 7, John warns the religious leaders. He says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? The wrath, which we know is the judgment of God. And the three verses that followed, John then advises them to repent, to bear fruit. Why? Because every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The wrath, avoid that, repent because of the fire. So John is clearly connecting the fire and the wrath of God poured out on those who fail to repent. Now, now what that means and why that's important is John is telling us, and he's speaking to an audience, that you will experience, hey, for me, there's only one baptism. I only came to baptize, to immerse, to overwhelm one way, repentance. The one coming, he's mightier than I because he will baptize, immerse, overwhelm in the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire. There will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit offered unto salvation, but there will be another baptism. And then he describes it as an unquenchable fire. The wrath of God. Now, in its specific application to the religious leaders in, in whom John is speaking directly, he is cor correcting a misconception. You see, they believed that the Messiah, the King, would come. Why? To judge and destroy Israel's enemies. But what John is saying here is he's saying, hey, the King is coming. But he's coming to do what? To judge Israel. Israel. Again, John says that he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor 
and gather his wheat into the barn. He'll burn up the chaff or, or the worthless part of the stock with unquenchable fire. And when you examine the fact that the ministry of John the Baptizer centered on the reality that it was his job to prepare the way and the life of an unbeliever for the transforming work of Jesus. Let me repeat that. John's job was what? To prepare the way and the life of an unbeliever for the transforming work of Jesus. And when you realize that's what John's whole job was, there's an interesting application for you and I. And I say for you and I, why? Well, because we share in John's calling. Do you realize that? You share in John's calling. His mission is your mission. You are a representative of Jesus. And it's not your job to save anyone. I hope you know that. You're not Jesus. Like, you can't save a soul. You're not the Savior. But what is your job in a lost, fallen world? It's to prepare the people that you love, the people around you, for the Savior. You're a forerunner. You don't save anyone. You prepare the way so that they can see that Jesus can save and change their lives. Again, this is why John came preaching repentance. Sure, he, he became known as the baptizer, but that was secondary to his primary purpose. You see, John had been called by God to herald the truth of God. John was a preacher. And he proclaimed a message that God had given him. John came to a broken, fallen, deadened religious culture calling sin, sin, unequivocally, unashamedly, even when it would pit him against the most powerful people and would create, in turn, a lot of enemies. You see, John's job, and I think it's so important for us to realize this, John's job, and it's the same with you and I, was not to make friends with the world. It wasn't to build bridges or develop consensus. His job was to prepare the way and the hearts of those who were lost so that just possibly they might accept Jesus as their Savior. And to do this, John preached God's Word. And he didn't shy away from the difficult realities presented in God's Word, like sin the need for repentance, or the fact that Jesus will have only one of two roles in the lives of everyone. He'll either be the Savior or he'll be the judge. There is no in-between. You know, I know that this is going to sound kind of antithetical to the churches, the modern churches, generally like kind of post-Christian approach to reaching a post-modern world, a secular culture, you know, where we, I think, kind of go over backwards on a range of issues from sex to marriage to gender, fill in the blank, to avoid offending people. I don't want to offend people. And we bend over backwards to, to prove to the world, hey, we're tolerant. I mean, heaven forbid anyone accuse us of being judgmental. But we must never forget, friend, that the core truth that a person cannot accept Jesus as their Savior if they don't first come to see themselves as a sinner is something we can't avoid. Yes, the truth should always be articulated in love. Don't get me wrong. 
And yet the gospel message, apart from repentance of sin, is not the gospel message at all. A person must first come to terms with the truth of their own brokenness. If they're ever to experience the transformation that Jesus wants to offer. Jesus came, yes, because he loves you the way that you are, but he came to change the way that you are. To make you something better. More heavenly. More like himself. And yes, you can have all kinds of battles with all kinds of issues. But Jesus wants to make you better. Not by you doing things, but by him transforming you. It's a rebirth. It's to be born again. But you can only do that if you acknowledge, I need saving. I'm lost. I'm broken. And I need somebody to fix me. And Jesus is like, that's exactly what I came to do. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us. In Jesus' name.